This is what God's word says, beginning in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their journey, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, as we have opened your word, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonder and the comfort of the gospel. Would you encourage the faint hearted? Would you strengthen the weak? That is all of us. And help us to remember anew and afresh the joy of knowing Christ and being secure in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Throughout the years I've been in pastoral ministry, I've come to realize that there's a very common struggle that Christians face regularly, something that I see in every congregation. And what I'm thinking of is not some heinous evil or some flagrant disobedience, but the struggle I see most often is weariness in the faith, spiritual tiredness, all of which results in a lack of joy and rest in walking with the Lord. Maybe I'm describing some of you today. Perhaps you can look back to when you first came to believe the gospel and you were altogether born again by faith when you understood the the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so in your conversion, you, you finally, for the first time, saw Christ as lovely and excellent and worthy of your highest affections. And so you began your walk with the Lord with this excitement and this zeal and passion. But fast forward to today, maybe you find that these recent days have been marked more by restlessness rather than peace and joy. And your fellowship with Christ can be described as an arduous uphill climb instead of how Psalm 23 depicts lying down in green pastures and resting beside still waters. In short, maybe your endeavor to be a faithful Christian has become more of a burdensome duty than a blissful delight. And if this describes you, perhaps you think, yeah, that's me, but why is that me? Didn't Jesus say, come to me and I'll give you rest? Then why is it that I feel so tired in this Christian life? Why am I so spiritually exhausted all the time? Is something wrong with me? Am I a defective Christian? And the answer is no, you're not a defective, failed Christian. But you are simply, as God's word would diagnose you, a distracted Christian. In your walk with the Lord, you've become busy with many things. And they are good things, even. 
But in the midst of these many good things, you may have begun to lose sight of that one essential thing that is to love Christ, to gaze upon his beauty. The Christian life must be grounded in affections for Christ. Forget about all the duties and responsibilities and difficulties just for a moment. At the end of the day, what must anchor your soul is just this simple, uncomplicated love for Jesus. And without this anchor, you're, you're going to be inevitably tossed to and fro by the waves of life. And that's when we begin to feel weary from all of the turbulence. You see, our passage today here in Luke chapter 10 is a fairly well-known passage of Martha and Mary. They are two sisters. And here we have a brief account of Jesus entering their home as a guest. Now, they're both believers. Okay? We know this because they received Jesus into their home in contrast with the Samaritans back at the end of chapter 9 who did not receive Jesus in verse 53 of chapter 9. They rejected Jesus. And so... Martha and Mary, they are both believers. And as such, they are both beloved by the Lord. But we find that there's a big difference between the two sisters. It's not a difference in the faith, because again, they're both devoted followers of Christ. But it's a difference in their focus, the priority of their hearts. Martha's focus is to do a lot of things for Jesus, to do many things. Whereas Mary's focus is just to be with Jesus. Just that one thing. And as a result, they each bear very different fruits. And as we walk through this passage, we would do well to examine our hearts by this rubric that is presented to us in this passage to see whether we are like Martha or like Mary. And frankly, I think we'd all come to the conclusion that there is more Martha in us than we'd care to admit. Well, the passage begins in verse 38 here, which tells us that as Jesus went on his way heading toward Jerusalem, he takes a pit stop and enters this particular village. Now, Luke doesn't tell us the name of the village, but we find out from John's gospel that this is the village of Bethany, which means that this is the same Martha and Mary of Bethany whose brother was Lazarus whom Jesus would later raise from the dead in John chapter 11. But verse 38 continues and says that a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. Martha was probably the older sister, given that she is the one who receives Jesus into her home. And now we need to pause and observe what a wonderful servant Martha is. And really... She is to be commended because it is a noble thing that she did by opening up her home to Jesus, especially in light of Jesus being rejected by other villages. And so, by contrast, Martha has done such a great act of service unto Christ, welcoming him with the warmth of her hospitality. And so we have to understand that in many ways, Martha is an exemplary disciple of Jesus. The comparison between her and Mary is not because Martha was wicked. Again, I stress that both Mary and Martha were beloved by Jesus. In any case, Jesus enters into the home, and then we are introduced to the other sister in verse 39. And she, that is Martha, had a sister called Mary, 
who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now this is the only verse that pans the camera to Mary. And it's for but a brief moment. And all that we can gather about Mary in this whole scene is that she just listened. In fact, there's no record of Mary speaking at all in this passage. No dialogue coming from her lips. She's presented to us as a silent figure just sitting there. But she wasn't idle. She wasn't lifeless. Rather, it says that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to him teaching. Imagine the scene with me. And notice Mary's posture in your imagination. She was seated before his feet. She was in Jesus' immediate presence, as close to him as possible. And the reason why this is important is because it shows the priority of her heart. She heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming to her home as a guest, and it wasn't enough for her to merely be under the same roof as him. As great of an honor as that is, but look, this is Jesus. They say he is the Christ, the Messiah, even the very Son of God who came down from heaven. And so with all this in mind, Mary resolves to treasure this opportunity. She says to herself, I must be with him. If this is the Son of God, I must relish every second of beholding his face with my two eyes. And so it wasn't just enough to be in the vicinity of Jesus under the same roof, but instead Mary came and she sat at his feet as near to him as she could be. Well, here she is now then, so bold to go and sit right in front of Jesus. What's she going to do? I mean, you would think that the proper etiquette would be before someone like him to wash his feet, to give him a pedicure, or some great act of humble service. I mean, what would you do with such a guest of honor sitting in your living room? Well, here's what Mary did. She came to Jesus' feet, and she had nothing to give to him. But she came to receive from him. She sat and listened to his word. You see, Mary had little to give to the Lord, but she offered him this, her attention, her devotion, her undivided heart. There she was before the fountain of grace, and she just came thirsty. And she drank of the living water that would satisfy her soul. She sat there delighting herself in the Lord, listening to him speak his words of grace and truth. The very wisdom come down from heaven. There was nothing more important to Mary than this. To hear the word of God from the mouth of God incarnate himself sitting there before her. And she found no greater joy and delight than this. But now, shifting gears, the camera pans back to Martha. And remember, she is a wonderful servant, to be sure. She was the one who received Jesus into her home. But look at the contrast. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She was distracted. She was pulled away 
from the right object of focus. What Mary was focused on, that is the person of Jesus Christ, his presence. And so this is what Martha was distracted from, that is Jesus himself. But beloved, here we come to the most crucial question of the passage. What was Martha distracted by? What was she distracted with? It doesn't say that Martha was distracted with much sinning. It says she was distracted with much serving. That's a good thing, isn't it? Serving Christ. Doing sacrificial acts of service. I mean, this requires much discipline, commitment, and all the commendable traits of a faithful believer. And yet, those very Christian virtues actually functioned to take Martha's eyes off of Jesus. You see, the problem is that for Martha, her service became the focus. And as a result, it took her away from the master whom she was serving. The irony is that it was Martha who received Jesus into her house, but she was so busy trying to do so many things for Jesus that she missed the whole point of her service of hospitality, welcoming him so that she might spend time with him. All the service was supposed to be a means to an end, the end which is to enjoy the fellowship and presence of the one whom she welcomed face to face. But for Martha, it was the means that became the end, as good as the means were. And it's from Martha's example that we learn a little something about ourselves, don't we? That the good things can become bad things if they replace the ultimate thing. You see, it is very possible for us as believers to allow Christian virtues and service to substitute a genuine, delightful communion with the Lord. The virtues of all the godly disciplines, as good as they are, as necessary as they are. The virtues of serving in the church in whatever capacity sacrificing your time, your energy, your money, all of these things. These are all great acts of devotion to Christ, no doubt. But what we must always observe is if all of these duties and responsibilities are functioning as replacements for the simple heart of love and adoration for Jesus. Christian, how about you today? My question to you is not primarily, how is your Christian discipline? How diligent is your Bible reading? How committed are you to the church? Again, they are all good things, and these are important questions to ask. But rather, the fundamental question this morning is this. How warm is your affection for Christ these days? Take a thermometer to your soul. What does it read? Is there a glowing heat of adoration pulsing within you? Or has your heart grown cold to the loveliness of Christ? And instead, you've just learned to occupy yourself with all of the spiritual chores of what you're supposed to do as a good Christian. Are you aware of the possibility that serving God 
could replace knowing God and loving God. It's very possible, as we see in Martha. It's so easy to be a Martha, isn't it? In fact, the problem is that it's easier to be a Martha than a Mary. Because it's easier to say, look, Lord, at all I do for you, than to say, look, Lord, at how I delight in you. It's easier to confess, Lord, I know I should be doing more, than to confess, Lord, my love for you is weak. Help me to taste and see that you are truly wonderful and lovely. And when life gets busy and you feel a sense of spiritual fatigue coming over you, it is far easier to try to will yourself to perform the motions of Christian commitment. And it is so much harder to calm yourself, as Mary did, by sitting before the Lord and begin kindling the flames of adoration. Because so often, our immediate reflex is to try to sustain our faith by our own strength and willpower, all the while neglecting to be fed by the grace of His presence and fellowship as our spiritual sustenance and nourishment. And all this inevitably leads us to become spiritually famished. And a famished soul is a frustrated soul. It's a hangry soul, if you will. And that's what we see in Martha. Verse 40, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Can you just feel her irritable heart? She's restless. Martha has been trying to do it all by herself and she can't keep it up anymore. And so she marches up to Jesus and she bursts. And notice how Martha's eyes are still fixated on the wrong thing. She says, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? She's not frustrated because something is keeping her from being at Jesus' feet. But she's frustrated that Mary, who is at Jesus' feet, is keeping her from producing the best kind of service. And at this point, Martha is so agitated that she has the audacity to command Jesus what to do? Tell her to help me. And these are the cries of a restless heart. Now, up until now, and Jesus hasn't said a word so far. He's been watching all this unfold. He knows. He's been sensing Martha back in the kitchen, you know, hastily working away in all of her good service. He knows what's going on in her heart. And finally, after Martha bursts in frustration, Jesus says to her in verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Now look, this is not, oh, Martha, Martha, can you please calm down? No, 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 we we have to hear it correctly with the love and tenderness in his voice. Oh, dear Martha, Martha. Jesus knows the cries of his weary sheep. He knows who in his flock are restless. He knows who in his congregation here are weary and need to be made to lie down because they are overtired, just like little children. 
Because we are, in fact, little spiritual children. And so Jesus looks to Martha and speaks to her, diagnosing her heart. And he says in verse 41, Oh, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. See the contrast? Many things versus one thing, which is what Mary has chosen, the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha has been having so many concerns about so many things concerning Christian duties. But Jesus says, all the while, Martha, you have forgotten to focus on the one thing which is essential and necessary. And all the many good things must sprout from the deep root of this one foundational thing, which is what Mary chose, the good portion. Now, what is this portion? Well, why does Jesus use this language? Because he's showing Martha the irony of it all. You see, Martha was in the back, furiously at work to prepare the best meal for Jesus. Because, my goodness, what what an honorable guest. And, And so she wanted to give him the most satisfying portions of food for him, to honor him. But all along, in so doing, Martha had neglected to feed her soul. And so Martha was weary, famished, spiritually spent. In all of her zeal for Christ, she kept giving and serving and producing all this output, 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 and her tank was running low. But here was Mary, who knew that what she needed more than anything was to be fed, to take in the grace of His love and presence. Martha was trying so hard to bake the best bread that Jesus would ever eat out of a sincere desire to honor and please Him. But Mary chose the good portion to feed on the bread of life Himself. To come to Jesus happily empty-handed, seeking to receive all that is in Him and thus delighting in Him. And this, Jesus says, will not be taken away from her. In other words, this is what lasts forever. Loving God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. Because this is what eternal life is. Heaven is a world of love, as Jonathan Edwards once preached. It is the unending world of eternal bliss, of delighting in the glory of God. What makes heaven so heavenly is that we will be perfected in holiness and therefore finally able to love God perfectly without any hindrance of the trace of any sin. And that is what makes heaven so restful. It is the peace and joy of loving God, enjoying His presence forever. Now Christian, have you forgotten of this one thing? The one great commandment to just simply love the Lord your God. Have you been busy trying to do a lot of things for God? Trying to get things right? Trying to make sure that you live a life pleasing unto Him? And that's a good thing. We need to think about that more. But have you been so preoccupied with that, that that has taken center stage? That you've become distracted by these many things and the Christian life has become this long laundry list of do's and don'ts and has become a burdensome duty. If so, the Lord knows that you are tired. He knows that you are restless. And He calls you to return to just that one necessary thing. 
just sit before Him and worship Him and drink from the infinite fountain of grace and love that He is toward you. You see, the problem is that in our sincere desire to bring glory to God, what can sometimes happen unwittingly is that we end up forgetting the gospel. We forget that our salvation from beginning to end is entirely about God graciously giving everything to us, and we put our focus on what we can do for God, what we can give to God. But at no point of the Christian life was it ever, and will it ever be, that we give to the Lord what we didn't already receive from Him. And He has made that abundantly clear by the cross on which Jesus Christ died for sinners to pay fully, comprehensively, totally for all our crimes and sin. And it wasn't just to bring us to a neutral ground with God and give us a second chance to start all over again and to see if we can please God with this opportunity of a new life. So we better get back to work in the spiritual kitchen to offer Him the best service possible in order to maintain a good relationship with Him. Look, if that were the case, I'd screw it up a thousand times already. For good reason, I'd have no peace, no joy in my heart. But that's not the gospel. Rather, if you have repented and trusted in Christ, you are unchangingly, perfectly, Loved by God, all the same, on your best and on your worst days as a Christian, because you have become inseparably united to Christ, who is eternally beloved by the Father, and that love flows to you who are in Christ. Christian, this is revealed for you that you might enjoy your life now, here, this life, of fellowship with God, peace with Him, the joy of loving Him and being loved by Him. The the Christian life rightly lived is one of freedom and rest and thanksgiving. Having everything and lacking nothing. And if you ever notice that your walk with the Lord has taken on these darker hues and shades of burden and distress and restlessness, then, beloved, return to the gospel of perfect peace with God through Christ. Beware of the mindset of Martha who felt the burden to do so much for Jesus because the true nature of the Christian life must be at its core the mindset of Mary, who was so captivated by the one she knew to be an endless supply of grace to give to her, that she couldn't help but draw nearer and nearer to Him, sitting at His feet in adoration and receiving all of her satisfaction in Him. Now, with all this said, perhaps you hear this and you think, But isn't service to Christ important? Doesn't the Bible call us as Christians to be servants of Jesus, who is our master? But are you saying that instead of sacrificial service to the Lord, I should just sit there and be mesmerized by Jesus and do nothing to carry out his will? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. 
The love for God is not mutually exclusive to service to God. Rather, love for God is the root from which the fruit of service to God blossoms. And it is this root that God demands of us first and foremost. This is the one thing to love Him. He calls us to love Him before He calls us to serve Him because what glorifies Him is when we serve Him because we love Him. And as we look at this passage, it's easy to think that Mary's adoration of Jesus is the opposite of Martha's zeal in serving Jesus. As though being like Mary, sitting and delighting in the presence of the Lord, is separate from the diligent sacrificial serving of Martha. And then you have to choose one or the other. But I submit to you this morning that it is the Marys of this world who are the greatest servants of Christ. All the great men and women throughout church history who spilled their own blood for the sake of the gospel, they were compelled and propelled by uncontainable affection and love and thankfulness to Jesus. Because the cisterns of their souls were so filled past the brim with delight in the Lord that they overflowed into sacrificial service and undying perseverance for his sake. The Mary-like heart is what produces Martha-like service, yet even greater and more lasting in degree and in power. Turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. Earlier I mentioned that Luke doesn't give the name of this, this particular village that Jesus went to, but we find from the other gospel writers that it was the village of Bethany. And this Mary and Martha, therefore, is the same Martha and Mary whose brother was Lazarus. And so here, well, Lazarus was raised in John chapter 11. And here in chapter 12 in John, we see the same Mary again, the Mary we just saw in Luke chapter 10. And it's sometime after the events of Luke chapter 10, because now it's about a week before Jesus would be crucified. And it says in verse 1 of John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus Uh, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, as she normally would, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Here we see that Mary gave an act of worship and adoration for Jesus. And of course, in verse 4, Judas ruins the moment because he just cared about the price tag of this expensive ointment because Judas was a lover of money, as verse 6 tells us. And so Judas says, hey, what's this? Is that Chanel? She just broke that thing? No, 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 she should have kept it and given it to the poor. But again, as verse 6 tells us, that's not what he actually meant. He just cared about the money. And we find out even there that Judas was a thief and he was in charge of the money bag amongst the 12 and he used to help himself to what was put into it. In any case, in verse 7, Jesus 
tells Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In fact, both Matthew and Mark tell the same account and they note that Jesus said, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Again, this is a week before Jesus was crucified. See, all that time Mary spent sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his word. She was one of the few who recognized that Jesus was on his way to lay down his life. She probably didn't understand everything, but she took him at his word and rendered to Jesus the most beautiful act of worship for the one who was on his way to be crucified for her. Now, I want you to notice verse 3. Matthew and Mark record that Mary poured the pure nard over Jesus' head. You see that in Matthew 26, 6 and Mark 14, 3. But here in John chapter 12, verse 3, as John testifies of the exact same event, he emphasizes that Mary poured it on Jesus's, not head, but on his feet. Now, they are both true. Okay? Mary poured it on his head and went down all the way to his feet as well. And she poured it on both. It would be a logical fallacy to assume that these were contradictions when actually this is emphasis, not exclusion. Both happened, but John is focused on the feet of Jesus. Now, the question for us is this, why? Why does John emphasize that it was the feet of Jesus that Mary washed and anointed? Because John is trying to make a point. You see, it's in the next chapter, in John chapter 13, at the Last Supper, that Jesus would then take out a towel and a basin, get on his knees, and wash the feet of his disciples to their utter shock. And in so doing, Jesus was teaching them that they must serve one another as he is serving them. And he uses the act of washing their feet as a symbol of sacrificial, lowly, self-denying service. You see, Jesus had to teach these self-promoting, thick-headed disciples to have the heart of a servant. But here was Mary, a week before, who needed no such prompting. Because her eyes welling up with praise and adoration for the Lord, gladly sacrificed that prized possession, a very expensive perfume. She broke that alabaster flask and served her Lord in the most humble way by washing His feet, not with a towel, but with her own hair. You see, the Marys of this world are the greatest servants of Christ because they are compelled by love and worship. They see Him as the greatest treasure, so much so that any earthly treasure, like that extravagant ointment, is perfectly fine to give up as a disposable instrument in glorifying Christ. Because for them, better is one day in His presence than a thousand elsewhere. They would rather be doorkeepers in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. 
They are the greatest lovers of God. And it is their overflowing love for God which spills over into the happiest service to God. No matter what the cost. Christian, understand this. The greatest service you could offer to God is the worship service of your heart. The Lord is not impressed with your service as though it were impressive in and of itself. God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. For He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Acts 17, 25. But God is pleased with those who ask for one thing and seek after one thing. To simply dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of their lives. To be in His presence. And to gaze upon His beauty. To seek His face in love. And so Christian, learn to focus your energy on cultivating your love for the Lord. Make this your life's ambition because this is the greatest ambition and commandment of life. To love God with all of yourself. And if you ever find yourself spiritually weary, know that it is the wise Christian who at that point determines to kindle the fading embers of his soul and fan it into the flames of affection once again. And so church, let us remember to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank You for who You are, the infinite fountain and wellspring of life and joy and delight. And we thank You for revealing this to us through Your Son, whom You sent. That in Him, in His person, we see Your character. The, the, the reality of the divine essence and nature. What a generous God You are. What a loving Father You are. And we see it all in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that so often we forget the, the joy and the comfort of knowing You through Christ. We, we neglect the privilege of fellowship with you. Help us, Lord. Restore us once, once again. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. And at this time, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, would you use the bread and the cup, these ordinary elements, or would you consecrate them for the special holy purpose of reminding to us that you are the one who feeds us. You have not called us to offer food to you as though you are a pagan idol, but that you give to us your very own self, that is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would strengthen our faith by these means. In his name, amen.